Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi there, it's uh, Guy Hans here. Um, I've been involved in operating and investing in businesses for as long as I can remember, certainly the last 40 years. And I've just written a book called The Dealmaker. Let me hand you over to Jonathan and thank you all for listening. Thank you very much, Guy. And I, I have it here, The Dealmaker, Lessons from a Life in Private Equity by Guy Hans. Um, really enjoyed the book. I'm uh, like you, um, neurodiverse, I think they call us now, dyslexic. Um, so for me, it, it's probably of the 200 I've listened to in the last three years, it's one of my top 10 favorites. I found it really enjoyable. It was a page turner. It had a nice pace to it. And also you shared, um, as the best leaders can do, only the strongest can be vulnerable. You shared some vulnerabilities when you got things wrong, which allowed you to learn from things. I've also got a nice connection with you in that uh, Mark Hodgkinson, who's now the CEO of Scope, the charity, um, worked with you and for you on a mm -hmm. number of your projects that you know, we talked about, uh, Wyvern and uh, McDonald's, and, and also some of the care homes that you turned around and spoke, speaks very highly of you. And also the late Pat O'Driscoll, who was the CEO of Northern Foods, and I was also her coach, and she worked with you at EMI, which was a, a very big event for you both. So it's really special for me having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. So thank you, Guy. Um, tell us what you're doing at the moment, and then we're gonna go back to a bit of life story, but what have you been doing in the last couple of years? Yes, I mean, COVID was quite interesting. Um, I sort of went into it um, with a very strong view about wanting to do a lot more deals, wanting to grow the businesses, wanting to invest in the business, wanting to take on leverage, and um, was all set up to do that. And then we got hit with COVID. And I suppose for the first six weeks, I thought I was going to have a, uh, a termination of my entire career. It looked absolutely horrendous. But we made some very big strategic decisions, um, frankly, just to keep the businesses open wherever we could, mm. rather than closing down. And th those decisions worked out very well. So we've come through COVID um, in a good place. But I've changed what I want to do quite radically during COVID. So from wanting to continue to do lots of new deals, I really want to focus on the portfolio of businesses I've got and also spend more time on some of the philanthropic community um, involvement that I have because it gives me a lot, a lot of satisfaction. So COVID, to some extent, for me, has been a life-changing event, but I would say in a positive way rather than a negative way. Yeah, and, and I think that's <clears throat> true for so many. As, as one person said, we've all been traveling in different ships and different vessels. And as the tide has gone up, we've all gone up and down with it. But we've had different experiences depending on the vessel that you're in. But um, Terra Firma Capital Partners, which has been so synonymous with you and, and the work you've done, um, has done some amazing things over the years. But let's go back to um, really as part of your book, which I very much enjoyed, that The Dealmaker. Let's go back to... Perhaps in about 10 minutes, Guy, we'll, we'll just do a little, a little synopsis of it. What have been some of the, the events that happened in your life that shaped you as the leader you are, the successes you've had, and, and also some of the things which hit you hard and you, you learnt 
tough lessons, life lessons from them. So over to you, really, a bit of a bit of a life story. Yes, I mean, I think I sort of came from what was then called Southern Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe, when I was about three years old and came from uh, this wonderful, idyllic uh, time um, with uh, my favorite dog, uh, frankly, nannies, beautiful weather, um, just a super place to be, um, to a rather cold England. The 62 winter was particularly cold. And um, that was a shock. And I sort of felt, and I had a strong feeling um, of being out of, out of uh, kilt pretty well from then on. And it sort of got worse as I sort of got involved in schooling, um, being very dyslexic, which in those days um, I was very lucky. They had the word blind center just being set up. So it was identified when I was very young. Um, I didn't do well at school academically, but I'm also dyspraxic and my coordination was particularly bad. So when it, it wasn't just a word blindness, there was also sort of a physical connection blindness. So at things like football, I was an absolute disaster, you know, kicking the ball in the wrong direction, et cetera. And yet in class, if the teachers asked a question about pretty well anything, um, I would have a very alternative answer. So they'd ask about, you know, what did Jesus say about something? And I'd say, ah, oh, but the Buddhists say this, which didn't really get me on very well with my teachers. And, um, and in, fact, in fact, one of the things that came out in your book was that for your age, you were quite, you know, you were an old soul in a young body and quite the conversations that you'd picked up uh, allowed you to get on much better with people much more senior than you. And, and clearly your way of learning was very different from other people. Is that is that fair? That's completely fair. I mean, I was precocious in, on one side um, and I desperately wanted to talk to people the whole time because that was how I could learn. I didn't learn from reading because I couldn't read. So I had to learn from talking to people. And clearly, I couldn't learn anything. Well, it sounds awful, but the kids around me couldn't teach me anything. Mm. So I was much more interested in learning from adults. And so you had this sort of slightly strange, mixed up kid who just didn't fit into school at all. Mm. Um, and never and just, just, stay, just staying with that one, it's, it's interesting about not fitting in uh, or whether events happen early in life, whether it's moving from southern Rhodesia to the UK and in a cold winter in 62 when I was born. But um, I think time and again with many of the leaders that I've interviewed, uh, either they like me lost their father when they were young. Mine was, I was just two and a half when he was killed flying or, or they had sort of sudden events which made them out of kilter with everybody else. And, and I, I suppose it often gives a drive to people to prove themselves. I, know, I certainly know that was something that was proving me. There's been a huge amount of drive in you do you think, could you, could you identify what it was you were trying to show people or prove to people? I think one, I mean, it sounds silly, but one of it was that I wasn't stupid. Um, mm. I felt I was very stupid. You know, it's, you know, they always say that if you criticize someone, you need 10, 10 times as much praise to get them back to neutral. Mm. And I think if you're in class and you are the stupidest in class at something, you know, it takes a heck of a lot to make yourself think you're actually good at anything. Mm. And so I just felt I was just hopeless and at everything I could see within school. And therefore, I think probably from the age of six, I just wanted to be out of school as quickly as I could and then prove myself. 
and it was it was quite interesting that you say uh, you know that you were made to feel stupid. I really resonated when I read your book, The Dealmaker. It, that really struck with me because my teach, teacher, age seven, said to me, "Jonathan, you know you're thick, you know, and unless you get better at your maths and your spelling, you're going to be a dustman." I mean, literally that, and, and luckily my mother, because I didn't get any world, but it was, I was uh, probably, I think I was about 40 before I realized I was dyslexic. So for years, I described myself as stupid. When people mm. would say, you know, you're really clever. I go, no, 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 I'm stupid. That's my label. So thank God you didn't choose to adopt the label throughout your life, but it also was you proving yourself, which maybe made you surpass everybody else uh, and achieve such amazing things as well as, stretch yourself in such a way that there were some some really challenging moments for you as well but it clearly gave you quite a drive didn't it it did I mean I, I wanted to prove that I was better at something than anyone else and what I found very early on was none of the other kids had any interest in making money and they probably couldn't have even if they tried um, but I absolutely was obsessed with it and it didn't matter whether it was in the Cubs selling you know Bob a job week um, or anything else, you know, in Bob a job week, I remember I, I raised, you know, more than twice the amount that the entire rest of the pack raised. And, it, you know, it's just, I went berserk in terms of trying to raise as much as I could. Mm. You know, when I acted as a scarecrow in the local fate, I didn't move, you know, for tens and minutes, even hours, because I wanted to be a scarecrow in an extreme way. And, you know, some of the stuff was not necessarily physically or mentally easy, but it didn't really matter. It was just this total obsession with trying to prove myself. Mm. And I think that obsession with trying to prove myself has continued throughout my life. Um, and in fact, probably uh, until COVID yeah. um, and where I was forced to take a step back. Mm. Um, otherwise, from the age of six, I really just had this intense need to prove to the world that I was successful. Yeah, and it is interesting that you found COVID, let's say March 2020, such a phenomenal change. I think for me in my leadership coaching and my public speaking and my team events, just gone and done another team event just now with a lovely company, JustEatTakeaway.com. Uh, uh, with their their UK MD and their and their top thirty six, and that was great fun. That was the first event I've done for two years face to face. So I think many people, it was quite a crunch point. I know, you know, my income dropped by eighty percent in March, bang, uh, March twenty twenty, and had to completely recalibrate. And and I'm actually enjoying working from home here in Grantham and Lincolnshire, um, rather than being down all the time as I was every week in London. And and I think people have recalibrated and and been forced to really look at what matters in life. Have you had the chance to sort of look at what really matters in life and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? Yeah, enormously. Um, I think I've also had a chance to look at what's where I'm effective and where, frankly, I'm not effective. So, you know, I used to do the classic male macho thing of just in which you do in investment banking and you do in private equity of just flying, you know, for meetings. I remember once I flew into Australia got there in the morning, did the meetings and flew back on the next flight. You know, it's really completely absurd. And you think it's, it's really you've got to be there. It's so important. Actual fact, there are very few meetings. You actually have to be there in person. There are some. 
So I've tried to say, when, am, when do I actually add value? And, you know, I've tried to stop being a busy fool. Mm. And a lot of us are busy because we think we're somehow contributing. Actually, all we're doing is making noise. Mm. And so I've really gone through that. And I think that's made me much more effective. It's also made me realize where I need to hire other people because either they can do it better than me or they're not going to do it any less well than me that actually it matters. Yeah, and, and I think that was where um, certainly um, Mark Hodgkinson and Pat, you know, th- there you had two people who'd been C-suite executives and you chose them to come and work for you so they could be an extension of you where you couldn't be. So you knew what you were good at, but you also knew that you'd hire good people to go and run the organizations you were turning around. And I think that's a real skill. Um, someone once described it as, surround yourself with an army of giants who are metaphorically two inches taller than you in their specialist areas because you don't have to do all the jobs yourself you're you're crazy and as you say busy 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 dead and Mm. and I think too many people you may have had some experiences but I I've been very profoundly impacted by my brother David who was just 63 and he died two months ago after 10 weeks of, of of a cancer diagnosis and then he was dead and, and, and it makes you think what really matters in life. Have you had some people who are close to you who've who've died or situations where it's really made you think what really matters as well as COVID? I haven't. I mean, I've been, I suppose I've been very lucky um, with regard to that. Um, the person who had to say, oh, comes, got to move to get the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> lights back. That's um, right. I suppose... I mean, my mother-in-law's death was probably for me the most traumatic um, because it was very, very quick, like like your brother David's of, of cancer. Mm. And it was a complete, you know, shock. She got the diagnosis and she was dead within, I think, 10 weeks. Wow. Um, and, you know, that was very horrendous. Um, I think from my point of view, though, what really changed me in terms of what matters was a... a a TIA minor stroke I had mm. um, in the middle of 2018. And that, you know, quite literally was life-changing um, in a good way, not a bad way. And then COVID came soon enough after that to be able to give me the time to reflect because when it happened, I made some immediate changes mm. to keep myself alive. But I didn't make the changes which actually wouldn't give a purpose to staying alive, if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, no, it completely makes sense. And, and I think my aspiration now, as I'm in my 60s, is um, to have my health span match my lifespan. And I, I think um, I was reminded, as you talked about in your book, of the various things that had gone on and, and the prices that you've had to pay. The, the, the old saying that everything in life is possible, Guy, if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences. So, Guy... Um, there's always a there's always a cost to pay when you're so busy and quite a workaholic as you as you have been as many leaders are to set up a very successful business like Terra Firma Capital Partners. Um, what do you think the impact has been on your wife, the family, and and how are you now mitigating that and sort of making up to them all? Yeah, I think the impact on them is is very very difficult. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I don't know many self-made really wealthy people who actually have happy families and are actually happy themselves. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, one of which of course, is you're taking away 
the major pleasure that people get in life, which is achievement. Mm. Because, mm. you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the wife, the husband, uh, the children, you've always got this thing, which is, you know, the legacy of the patriarch mm. uh, to try and live up to. And that's really, really difficult. And most really successful people pass some of that genetics onto their kids and they marry someone who's got probably some of the same genetics. And it's, it is just horrendous for them. I mean, I don't know how you do actually make that up, except for the advice I've been given is just to let people free and let them and actually try not to smother them, not to help them and let them be themselves. Because by being themselves, they'll either succeed or fail, but it will be theirs, not yours. And I think that's probably the most mm. difficult thing is actually to make it up by standing back. Mm. Um, you know, you've lost, to some extent, you've lost the right uh, to be there. You weren't there when they were 14, 15, 16. Why do you think you can suddenly be there when they're 28, 30? Yeah, you have to have a different kind of relationship. I mean, my two daughters are uh, 27 and 28. And both doing very well and I'm very, very proud of them. But I, I had a first marriage that didn't work out after 23 years, I, I've remarried, but I'm now very happy and they know that and their mum's okay. Um, but there were consequences. And, and so you have to build a new relationship with your children. Now they're young adults. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably the same for you. Um, Guy, my next question really is sort of linked to this, proudest moments and darkest moments in your career and life and, and what you learned from, from both of those, those two imposters, as Rudyard Kipling would describe them. Yeah, and he's very right about that. Um, I suppose the proudest moment probably was Angel Trains, uh, in that the press was so negative when we did that deal, and the market was pretty negative. We, you know, we were the only other bid besides management. They bid 550 million, knowing everything about the business they could. And we bid 700. It was just seen as a completely insane, crazy bid. And then we refinanced it for 725, you know, within a couple of months. Um, extraordinarily successful refinancing. Um, got all our money back and it was sort of described in the press as a great train robbery. And we went on to make, you know, 400 million. And we could have, you know, if we'd held it, we'd have made much, much more because the business was very, very successful. And, and I think that really, to me, was probably the proudest moment because that really was a FU moment to the rest of the city and to everybody else. And then, of course, everybody copied that type of securitization. And it really transformed how private equity operated, whether it did it for those types of securitizations or whole loans, which had similar characteristics. Mm. People hadn't thought about actually using leverage to that extent to buy a business. You know, there's, a, there's an old LBO model, which is always much the same. And this was going in and doing something completely different. Mm. Um, so that was very proud. Yep. Um, so fired the CEO and the, CEO and the CFO at the first board meeting. Mm. And, brought, you know, just promoted, put two of the people from Terra Firma straight in there. And it wasn't Terra Firma, it was PFG in there, put them straight in there. And they've been friends ever since. And they were both spectacular. Mm. Uh, um, at what was needed in the company, which was for people not to think of it as a train company, but as a financing company, which it was. It was leasing trains. It wasn't manufacturing trains. Mm. Um, the darkest moments really were EMI related. 
partly because of the length of time it went on. I mean, I always one of my favorite songs is Mumbo and Poppers. Um, and that line in, in one of their greatest songs, you know, it's darkest just before dawn. Yeah. I kept thinking with EMI, it's really dark, but dawn is coming. And the reality is dawn never did come. And it just was, there was no, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And that was doubly frustrating because the operational changes, which Pat and others made were incredibly successful. And the, strategic view which I had was completely correct and if we still had it would have seven to ten times our money but I messed up in terms of my relationship with Citigroup and having yeah. messed that up we just ended up with war with each other yeah and, and it took so much um, I, I know from moments when I've been I don't know in, in court with uh, fraudsters or whatever it, it takes so much of your life and I think that came across in your book just how much of your life you had to give up to fight that one. Uh, and of course, the only people who tend to win are the lawyers. Uh, and the system does seem very unfair that you still pay people even though you lose. Um, there's no sort of uh, incentive for doing well. I, I do think the world, as you said, is run by lawyers and it does seem very unfair. Uh, I know from matrimonial uh, court cases, it's very unfair and they seem to relish in it. Um, yeah, that, that came across um, that the sort of darkest part of the night just before the dawn wasn't it Oscar Wilde who said everything's going to be all right in the end and if if it's not all right it's not yet the end but I think uh, <laughs> maybe in the in the end it was not quite all right but um your your stories you grew up and all the things that happened to you thinking back to when you were that 16 year old as you say that didn't quite fit in you wanted to be different you were quite driven by by making money being being successful in that way knowing what you know now guy um with all the experience you've had successes disappointments setbacks lots of learning what advice would you give to the 16 year old guy hands and indeed any other 16 year olds or parents who are listening for their own children about the things don't worry about this but but do focus on that what would you give to a, a young man a bit of advice uh, I think a young man or a young woman, the advice I would give, and I'd be absolutely clear about this, is you need a confidant, um, I, ideally more than one, who you can talk about anything with and who do not have an agenda. And that's really difficult. I mean, it's a mentor, effectively. Mm. And I didn't have one. I got one, got two much later on in my life. But they would have been the people I needed to talk to when I was looking at the EMI deal. Mm. They're the people who would have said, Guy, if this deal works, you'll make 250 million. And if this deal fails, you'll lose your business, which is worth two and a half billion. Do you think there is a more than 90% chance it's going to work? And you, the answer would obviously have been, no, there's not. In which case, you wouldn't have done it. And so, by contrast, the people who had an agenda, the people in the firm, they wanted to do the you know, a great deal. And they, what were they going to lose? Nothing. Yeah. They're just going to get another job. So you've got to have that independent thought and it can't necessarily be your life partner. You know, there's certain things you can't talk to your partner about, and you certainly can't talk to people at work about. So get, you know, we used to talk about everyone needs to have good godparents to steer mm -hmm. them on a moral compass. Um, I think that's still got a lot of truth, 
but I think the real thing I would say today is you need to have a really good business parent. Yeah. Somebody who cares about you just for you and isn't going to have an agenda and isn't going to lecture you. Yeah, that's such a really good point. And uh, when I think back, I was very lucky to have helped me. One was uh, General the Lord Dannett, uh, Richard Dannett, who when he was head of the army, he was my commanding officer when I was a young major. And I learned so much from him in the way he behaved. I was learning him, not what he was saying, but how he was behaving as well, which matched what he was saying. And also Nancy Klein, who uh, is now in her seventies, but wrote a book about time to think and a sort of way of being and listening to people, not interrupting people. Um, but I, I wish without, without a father figure, I was constantly looking for father figures. And indeed I tried when I worked for the head of the army, Field Marshal the Lord Inge, I thought he'd be my father figure. The man, the man was ferocious and uh, scary to everybody and certainly not a mentor father figure to me. I, I only just survived working for him when he was chief of general staff because he'd sacked the previous two ADCs. And if he'd sacked me as well, two you could get away with, but three, it begins to point towards him. And so I think he, he sort of forgave me for my incompetence because I certainly was very incompetent. But I, I do think that whole idea of a confidant and, and somebody said to me again, a mentor to me said, in the decisions you make, think of head, heart, gut and wallet. Head 89 billion neurons, your heart has 40,000. So is that logical? Does, does it make your heart sing? And your gut instinct, there's 100 million neurons in your gut, your microbiome, and they're giving you messages. Pick them up and listen to them. And then wallet is, does it make financial sense? And there's a logistics fit. But I quite like that head, heart, gut and wallet. Is a, because what you were describing in your book was sometimes, particularly with EMI, and, and the battle with City, it became very emotional because you trusted them, you built a strong, uh, a strong link with City, and then they reneged on it and did the dirty on you. And that felt wrong, it wasn't fair. But of course, as you know, and I know now from bitter business experience, life is never fair. And once you accept that, life becomes much easier. What, what's your thoughts? No, I think that's co completely correct. I mean, there's a, and I always forget who it was, but there was a great American leader who said, you know, effectively, don't fight a battle you can't win. Mm. And, you know, that's, in some ways, that's an obvious statement. Um, but, you know, as the, the historian Taylor um, points out in his book about why wars start, they normally start because one side thinks they can win and mm. yeah. can't, yeah. because only one side can win. Yeah. And when you look at the, that battle I was in, there was no way I was going to win a battle against Citigroup. No. And what I should have done was realize that and like any primate gone into a completely submissive position and said, you know, please help me. Because the reality is most human beings, when they're faced with someone saying, I'm submissive and I need help, actually will help. Hmm. Um, or at least they won't kick you in the teeth. Now, yeah. And the people at Citigroup weren't bad people. They just were defending their patch against my patch. Yeah, yeah. No, and and it, it was a tough time. And, and they were in, in survival mode. So they, they fought for themselves. And I've seen them do that again. Um, that, that was a really interesting time. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass, the eight principles that we found help people become high-performing leaders like you have been. Um, even though that we're all very human with humanity, humility, and a nice bit of humor. 
The first one is moral quotient. So what I call the true north. What have been your three foundational values that still stand you well in good times and in bad times that you, you nail your colors to that mask? I think one is transparency. Mm. I find it's very easy for people not to lie. It's much more difficult for people to tell the truth. And transparency is vital in terms of decision making. I mm. can't make decisions and the businesses can't succeed unless there's total transparency. Mm. I think the next one, which really matters to me, is for people not to discriminate mm. in, in any way. Um, you know, and, it, it, and it's quite interesting because not discriminating is much more difficult than people realize. Mm. Um, you know, I think you know, a classic one which has happened in the last few days is South Africa fi finding this variant. Now, it could be a horrendous variant, but the reality is, A, it didn't start in South Africa. B, other countries found it before South Africa. But the response was effectively a discriminatory response. Mm. You know, those guys in South Africa, they're not really up to it. We didn't find it in Europe. Therefore, we'll close South Africa down. Yeah, Actually, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was in Holland, discovered in Holland before South Africa. So why didn't we close Europe down? Correct. That, to me, until you can get over that and you don't have that instant feeling, you're discriminating. And, and in my view, A, I don't like it from a moral point of view, and it's a real stand-up to me, you know, and coming from southern Rhodesia, you can understand why. Mm. Um, but there's another reason, which is it actually is incredibly bad business or political sense, yeah. because it cuts you off from making rational decisions. Very, very true. And it was interesting, of course, you remember 1918, the Spanish flu. Now, the Spanish flu didn't begin in Spain. It actually began in a pig farm, I think, next to an American barracks. I seem to think it was back in Kansas, but it was taken by the, the soldiers with them from, from pigs to humans. But it was called the Spanish flu because they recorded it because they weren't at war with everybody else. They just finished the Civil War. So they had a good record of who had it. Just like um, one of the ladies who's about to be on, um, uh, Sharon Peacock, CBE, who's the government's microbiologist in charge of COG UK, doing all the, the RNA testing. She said, because we had such good uh, alert to what was going on, we acknowledged the Delta first, but it actually began in India. But of course, everybody thought it was Kent, the Kent variant, because that was where they were first identifying it. I think you make a very good point. And what was your third after don't discriminate? Uh, in any way, what was your third fundamental principle you live by? A transparency and don't discriminate. And I think, think about people in the plural, but not people in the, as the individual. Mm. Too many people in business or in anything forget about the fact that we are a community and they focus extremely on the individual mm. and actually one needs to think about what is good for the whole community not just for the individual and that's a strange thing for someone to say who's been in private equity but actually I would say the businesses we do have succeeded because they've worked out how they can succeed and work for the customer yeah and then and then within the business itself we've tried to put together leadership teams which can work together as opposed to leadership teams which are 
revolve yeah. around one person. Yeah, and it, it's very much a sort of uh, Eastern versus Western kind of viewpoint. The individual, which is very British American, and versus the the community, which is very sort of Chinese and Indian. Um, PQ is the next one uh, of the eight, um, which is meaning a purpose. And and as you look back now, with the benefit of joining the dots, as Steve Jobs said, looking back on your life, why have you done what you've done? What, what's been the calling? What's been the vocation? Why, why have you done all the things you've done? I would say up until COVID, I basically was just doing, as frankly, just saying F off um, to the world. world. And, you know, there's, I, I drove, you know, I left my school, uh, you know, age 18, and I swore to myself I'd never go back to that school unless I could go back in a Rolls Royce and give a V single to the headmaster. <laughs> and, and I wasn't sure whether it was a V single for victory or a V single for something else. Um, <laughs> I wanted to include um, a Patti Smith uh, lyric, Piss Factory. Um, in the book but, uh, <laughs> I love the lyrics you put in by the way I think every chapter it comes along with this there's a song and how it means something for you particularly resonance for me I love that one great and so from uh, meaning and purpose and and there you you know it was originally it was fuck off but but to the world but but now what gives your life meaning and purpose now in the last couple of years now it's really about uh, speak the truth and do good yeah. Um, and, you know, I want to make a difference for good. And yeah. it's, you know, it's got a certain similarity, I suppose, to what business leaders in the Renaissance did hmm. when they bought themselves favours to go to heaven. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just trying to be able to get a piece of myself. Yeah. And, 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 and we do find that actually, uh, as we get past our 50s, the brain changes in such a way neurobiologically that we become more pro-social. So, for example, my wife, Lee, has set up a charity called the Inspiring Leadership Trust, which is for vulnerable girls who've been through abuse, slavery, uh, modern-day slavery, trafficking, mental health issues. And they really need help and they really need support. But we're finding people, as they get into that later stage, they're starting to think, I want to do something more than just make a lot of money, be very successful according to, um, according to society's rules and measures. But actually, I want to do something. I want to send the lift back down and want to help people up. Does that resonate? A hundred percent. You know, I mean, I look back at it and say, what, you know, what, why did I make this money? What is this money really for? And, you know, the, the kids need to succeed themselves. And I believe they can. And I actually think me helping them too much is actually bad. Um, I think actually it, it, it takes away their sense of purpose. They need to have a sense of purpose. Hmm. And I don't, and I want them to have their own sense of purpose, not mine. Yeah. And then that means, so what do I do with this money? Um, you know, I spend a lot of time making it. Hmm. And now I want to you know, work out how do I give it back? Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely. And it, it's nice to hear. That's always part of the legacy we'll talk about later on. Health question, the, the third. Um, in 2018, you had that... Um, shock to the system really and minor stroke as you say bit of a wake-up call uh, i i've just only come out of hospital after seven weeks with some sort of urology challenges which i was very ill and it's a bit of a wake-up call uh you, you heard about my brother david and my brother graham was stabbed by a psychopath and almost died himself so these moments happen to us all what are you doing to look after yourself firstly physically and secondly mentally if you were to give a tip on each uh, physically 
um, very simple. I'm cutting down on alcohol. Yeah. That's the number one thing. I mean, so many people lie to their doctors about how much they actually drink. You know, people forget there's 10 units in a bottle of wine and they try and persuade themselves there's only six. And so they tell their doctor, well, in a, in a bad week, I have, you know, 40 units. And what they actually mean is in a bad week, they have 70 units. And so I was one of those people who would go to the doctor and the doctor say, how much do you drink? And I'd say 40 units. Um, and now I'm actually trying to cut it down to 20 units, which is two bottles of wine a week. Mm. And, you know, I feel vastly better for it. I'm also trying to make sure I don't drink Mondays to Thursdays. Yeah. To do that, um, I'm actually telling people that I'm not drinking Monday to Thursdays so I can get some social help not to drink Monday to Thursdays mm. rather than people trying to top up my wine. I rather at the beginning of the business meal, the wine glass is taken away. It's yeah. really easy if you don't have a wine glass in front Correct. of you. No, it's very true. And, and um, sadly, one of my now deceased uh, relations in my first marriage was an alcoholic and um, uh, we all went to Al-Anon to try and help out um, but one of the mottos they always said that um, if you're likely to slip up don't go somewhere slippery um, mm. so so if as you say by having a, a habit that's easy there where you just don't have a wine glass you go I haven't got a wine glass because I'll have some water I think is very wise what about mental top tip because you know you've been through you think back to the darkest moments of that long legal battle against city and you know case after case and just getting beaten and beaten and it just unrelenting uh you you said at the time it really affected your mental health and i've had my mental health affected as well i i relate to that to get the beginning of covid but what what have you done to look after your mental health now currently there's a lot of things um I think one is actually seeing a psychiatrist and getting a mild dose of anti-anxiety and anti-depression uh, tablets. And it's a very mild dose, but it's enough to take the edge off things, which means I don't get as angry when things aren't, when I get frustrated, because it's normally frustration which gets me angry. So that has died off. And, and, and frankly, most people I know comment on this. I mean, it, 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 to them, it's quite a transformation. Mm. Um, and it, it wasn't, you know, my anger just used to hurt. I mean, physically hurt. Mm. You know, it almost felt like you were having a heart attack. Um, mm. So it wasn't very useful for me. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't great for anyone else to experience, even though they knew it gone in 10 minutes. Uh, it's like a, a, literally like a, you know, a squall in the middle of summer and mm. hail mm. and lightning and form it's gone. Yeah. But it's these effect on me um, and sometimes on them as well. Um, so that has been very useful. Um, yoga has been incredibly useful um, and doing some physical exercise. Um, I find actually yoga and walking are probably the two which most relax me. Yep. I love walking, um, which I did when I was six years old, which is quite interesting because as a kid, I absolutely adored walking and walking again. And then I suppose having um, people that one can share conversations with mm. um, and feel that they, yet they're really there for you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Yeah. You know, and they're not going to have a vested interest. Um, so you know, I think on a both on a personal basis and on a work basis. On a work basis, I've got my mentors. But on a personal basis, I've got people now I can actually talk to and open up to. Mm -hmm. And I never used to. 
Um, yeah. I used to sort of keep it all closed in myself. Yeah, it's really good what you're doing, Guy. And what I do with the other CEOs is we have walking meetings. They might be in one part of the country, I'm in another. We both go for a walk. I take Archie and they take a dog or they just go for a walk across the hillside themselves. And they do their strategic time to think they download and talk things through, but they know that they're not going to be interrupted while they're thinking things through. And then they get the response of what I think has come up. And they found that incredibly useful, as you say, having someone to talk to. Um, thank you for that. EQ next, uh, emotional intelligence. And um, you've talked about at times that you weren't reading people as well as you could do. You know it's important. You've learned certain skills in how to read situations when you might have missed the cues. Maybe it was, I don't know, in battles with City or in EMI. When, when it had you had a mentor, they would have been able to be less emotionally attached and just ask you a couple of great questions. You know, is there a 90% chance that you're going to win it or lose it? Those kind of things. What's a tip you've learned about emotional intelligence uh, from your experiences? I think the, the first one is it's very difficult to listen and project at the same time. Mm. And many people think they're great listeners when actually they're projecting. Um, so you have to start by being able to listen. Then when you listen, you've got to remember the context that the other person is coming from. And it isn't your context. So you've got to really put yourself in their shoes and understand why they're saying that. So if you took the Citigroup one, I took it that they basically were trying to get me. In reality, they were trying to protect themselves. And the conversation we, I needed to have is, look, we're both in absolutely in the shits. You guys have made a five billion loan you can't syndicate down. I, I need your support to have any chance of making this deal work. And the only way this is gonna work is to work together. Mm. So let's find a way that we can actually have an open conversation. Exactly the same as you have in marriage counseling when you've got two partners who can't talk to each other. Until yeah. you can get down on the same level mm. and speak the same language, you have no chance. Yeah. yeah. And then and, that's and, where... Yeah, and this is where the facilitation, mediated facilitation between two people, which I find so good between, I, I think about a CEO and a chairman who just couldn't get on with it. So they, they'd hate being in the same room. And what I did was just two minutes, one speaking, the other couldn't interrupt. They had to listen to the point that when it was the other person's turn for two minutes, in 30 seconds, they had to summarize to the other person's satisfaction, thumbs up, what they'd said before they could then respond with their 90 seconds of their viewpoint to be summarized by the other and back and forth. And I think it, it's something that we don't do to really show that we get the other person, which leads me nicely on to CQ which is cultural intelligence question. And you've said a number of times um, about the importance of diversity and having a wide range of different people. What's your lesson around cultural intelligence, people from different backgrounds or people who are different from you and how you ensure the sufficient diversity, equality and inclusion? I think the, the, the first thing I would say is that you can get so far in an organization by being like everyone else. And there are a lot of organizations who hire for that. It makes people very comfortable. And you know, the thing which most worries me from a CEO is when I say, why do you want to hire that person? And they say, because we get on really well. I really like them. And I think, wow, that's not going to be good because you tend to like people like yourself. So we do a lot of 
testing. And I do a lot of interviewing. And I, I don't interview people ever um, for skill. You know, my view is, is that if they pass the test, they've got a reasonable academic background, they've done the similar job, they've got the skill. My interest is where they're going to fit in culturally within the organization. And are they going to bring something to the organization we don't have and something to the leadership team, which we don't have, or are they actually just going to be something we've already got? So if we've got a lot of, I use discovery a lot, we've got a lot of blues, then we need to move it around. And food folk, where we've been incredibly successful, we've totally transformed the wheel there from being red and blue and only red and blue to now having green and having yellow and having reds whose second color is a yellow and blues whose second color is a green. And then then making them understand what each other can bring to the conversation. Yeah. And it's been transformational. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really am pleased that you, I, I know Discovery. I, I designed a psychiatrist myself. I use different ones on what drives and motivates people and also the decision making style, the kind of roles in the create, design, operate, enhance cycle of business. You know, where are the kind of roles from the entrepreneur to the to the operations person? Certain people have certain roles and it's really useful when I do that with a team, when you see how everybody's suited. But I, I think it, it, what you've just touched on is really interesting about this looking for difference. And, and as one of the CEOs said, if I hire someone and she and I both think the same and speak the same, then one of us is redundant. <laughs> like, you know, so I'm looking to, to have that red team, that kind of challenge, that devil's advocate of difference. That's really great. Arcu's next guy. Uh, you've had to show a lot of resilience against adversity. What would be your top tip on resilience and how you bounce back from setbacks? I've actually got an interesting tip on that, which is I do have extraordinary resilience and a sort of ability to take an incredible level of pain and still keep going. I actually think one of the things that people who are, are entrepreneurs, particularly, who are successful is their ability actually to say when they shouldn't keep running at the wall and actually I'd probably answer it slightly different and say my biggest learning about resilience is when actually just to avoid it when to say this is a fight not to do because the problem with having a lot of resilience is you just keep going and keep going because you believe you can make it um, yeah. Oh, just one lovely story that Isabel Santois, who my wife interviewed for her book, Inspiring Women Leaders. Uh, she's so small that her rucksack is probably as big as her. She's one of the few Swiss mountain guides. And, and it was really difficult for her to get in many, many men and just about three women. She's one of them. But when she was taking people summiting up Matterhorn or other top peaks, she would always have an agreement on if things go down. My job is to look after you as a client and make sure that you get back down. When we summit, we're half the way there. We're not all the way there. And people think they've summit, I've done it now, but that's when they die. And so she often stopped them getting summit fever. And sometimes, even if it was about what appeared to be 200 meters from the summit, it actually was about an hour and they'd run out of time because the weather was turning and she'd turn them back. But then she'd meet people going by for the summit and she'd go, you must stop and go back. I'm a mountain guide, do not go. No, no, we're going on with my guide, we're going on. And they died 
because people got so summit fevered, so obsessed that they died. And, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, so, so just, uh, I think that fits with what you've said very strongly. Brand quotient is next guy, brand reputation, image impact, what people say about Guy Hands when you're not in the room. What have you done over the last few years to, I mean, sometimes don't worry, what was that lovely saying? If you worry what people think about you, you'd be surprised how little they do. They're not thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. But, but what have you done by way of you know, coaching or 360, where you've started to pick up how you're landing well or badly with people and perhaps tuning and learning from that? What, what have you done? Very little, I'm afraid. Um, you know, one of the things you know and discover is it gives a score for how much your subconscious is at conflict with your conscious. And mine is bang on top of it. It's zero. Um, actually, it's 1%, but it's the lowest I've ever seen. So in some ways, you could say I'm very comfortable with my own being. In some ways, you could say that I'm making absolutely no effort to be anything but myself, and I should. Um, you know, I had a discussion about this with somebody the other day, actually yesterday, and I was speaking to a politician, and he was asking me what I thought uh, about tourism in Guernsey. And I said, why do you want tourism in Guernsey? And he said, no, hang on, I'm asking you as an investor what do you want. I said, I said, I could prostitute myself and give you a really nice answer about what's good for me as an investor. Or I can ask you the important question, which is how does tourism help Guernsey and what does tourism cost Guernsey? Mm. And until you start looking at that, you're not doing the right thing for the people in Guernsey. They said, well, I'm, I'm here to try and do more. To, you, know, you know, Jersey said they want to have a million tourists a year. And, you know, we only have 180,000 and we want to get catch up with. Guernsey. I said, why? Yeah, you know, we, our beaches are lovely. Our roads aren't too crowded. Why do we want to be like Jersey, where it takes an hour and a quarter to get into the main town these days? Very good and challenge. Very good challenge. So, so I would say, actually, I, I've, I've done very little. And I think that means I have rather a rather difficult reputation out there. But the hey, but you know what? In the end, it's all about um, the difference that you make. And if I we've got about five five to ten minutes, I think you're on another call shortly. My team, tell, your team, tell me. So um, legacy. What would you like your legacy to be in your work and your life? In in a sentence or two on each, what would you like your legacy to be? I, you know, um, he told the truth and made a difference. Yeah, love it, love it. Okay. Um, next, just got three three short questions. Executive teams. You've been doing a lot of work with McDonald's. We talked about that as one of them. What have you done? What's your secret sauce when you've turned around a toxic team to a high performing team? And I don't mean McDonald's, but I just any of the teams you've had. What what have you found you've done to turn around a toxic team to make it high performing? When I was taught this when I was at Goldman um, by a chap called Mark Winkerman, who was a Dutchman. And he said to me, Guy, when you've got a business you need to turn around, you can never fire enough people at the senior level. Mm. However many people you fire, you've missed someone you should have fired. Mm. Wow. And um, I saw him do it in Jay Aaron. And, you know, he actually fired so many people, there wasn't enough people to answer the phone on the Monday. But <laughs> then he, he hired some back. And his point was, I hired them back because they deserved the job. And they knew when they came back, that they were working for me. Correct. If I hadn't fired them, they wouldn't have made that cultural adjustment. Yeah. And I think that's very, very true. So to me, the secret sauce is, if you want to turn around a toxic team or you want to make a change in a business, 
the responsibility is the senior team, not the people lower down. You've got to make the change at the senior team and you've got to build a new management team. Very good. And then we talked about books and you and I as dyslexics don't read very much. But in your book, you talked about um, uh, one of the Zulu uh, leaders and that influenced you. Do you want to say why you thought that was a good book that people should read? Yeah, I mean, I was given it when I was about 10, I think. It's a very strange book to give a 10-year-old because it's got all sorts of very adult themes in it. But it's about Shaka Zulu. And I suppose this was this illegitimate um, kid growing up in a tribe, getting treated, treated incredibly badly, watching his mother get treated badly. And then he went on to be the greatest royal leader that's you know, been in Southern Africa ever. Mm-hmm. And he did it through just force of personality. You could say brutality, but you could also say complete single-mindedness. Yeah. And I sort of read the book and I saw all the success that he had. And then he, at the end, he let his guard down and was assassinated. Mm. And I sort of thought that the point where he succeeded and started to feel comfortable as a leader, he got killed. Uh, and, and that to me was a very, very good lesson. Yeah, yeah, very good lesson. Right, well, look, we, we're down to the, the last top tip and then um, we'll stop recording, but if you just stay on for a minute or two before your next meeting. Um, Guy, would you just introduce yourself again, what you're doing now and give us your two minute top leadership tip. Okay. My name's uh, Guy Hans. I've just written a book called The Deal Maker. And I think my top leadership tip would be that remember that the people who are working in your team need to believe in you as an individual. Mm. And for them to believe in you as an individual, you need to have the correct ethics. You need to walk the talk, not just talk the talk. And you have to be willing to not compromise on certain red lines. And those red lines vary from business to business and they vary from person to person. But for example, in our food folk business, our McDonald's business, we will not compromise on any form of harassment. Mm. And that's difficult for legal reasons because in the Nordic countries, you're meant to, you need a standard of proof which would hold up in a court. But we just will not tolerate it. And if we have to pay compensation under that scheme, we'll pay compensation on that scheme. Right. And it's essential as a leader that you have some of those, you have that, those, that combination. Yeah. Otherwise, why would anyone follow you? Brilliant. Guy. Guy Hans, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's been fascinating. There's much more we could have chatted about. But congratulations on your book, The Dealmaker. Um, I do recommend it to my audience around the world to listen and or to read it. And, and to take some lessons from it. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, 
get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.